Traveling through central Spain, everything seems to have deep cultural roots, Catholic, Moorish, even ancient Roman. And with its lively post-Franco prosperity, Spain is kicking up its heels. I'm Rick Steves, and today on Travel with Rick Steves, it's the heart of Spain. Tour guide Federico Garcia Barroso joins us in a moment to shed some light on the sights and history of Castile and share some practical tips for visiting Spain. And then, for even more cultural fun, we look to the island nation of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean. Learning more about this island getaway, it just seems right that Mauritius rhymes with delicious. It's a fascinating melting pot of Asian, African, and European cultures, popular with Europeans, but almost unnoticed by Americans. Our guest, Patrick Noel, has some insights that may just tempt us to travel halfway around the world to visit the island he calls home. It's a rich mix from thriving Madrid to delicious Mauritius, today on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Later this hour, we'll investigate the cultural melange that gives the island nation of Mauritius a distinctive flavor. But let's start today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves in more familiar territory, central Spain in its vibrant capital, Madrid. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today we're traveling to the center of Iberia. Iberia is Spain and Portugal, the big peninsula there, and the high plateau in the middle. Much of it is a region called Castile, and the capital of that region and the major city of Spain, Madrid. I have joining me a friend and fellow tour guide, Federico Garcia Barroso. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Rick. How are you today? Very good. Your name, Garcia Barroso. Yeah. Now, that's two names. In Spain, is it common to have the both names? How does that work? Yes, actually, that, that's the way, the way it is. And we, we keep both family names from our father and from our mother. And we can just place them in the order that we want, okay? Who chooses? Uh, both. <laughs> Daddy and mommy. <laughs> Daddy and mommy organized yeah. that. <laughs> exactly. So your name, Garcia Barroso, your yeah. mother and father's names were... Well, your mother's name would be... Barroso. But she would have case. two names also. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What was the other name? The other one is Perez. <laughs> Perez. Perez. So why did Barroso survive and not Actually, Perez? survives. The first one is the one that survives. And that's chosen by just whatever one you like to have first. Exactly. So you cannot derive that yeah. was the mother's mother or anything like yeah. this. Now it's absolutely flexible. But in the old times, in the times of Franco, the priority was always focusing on the man. You ah, see, never so on a woman. The dictator Franco liked yeah. to have a macho, <laughs> male-dominated Maybe society. that was the reason, maybe. So it's sort of more modern and more equal to let the woman's name go first if you want or something yeah, like this. Absolutely. Okay, but you choose the father's name first, Garcia mm-hmm. Barroso. Mm-hmm. Actually, some people call me Federico Garcia Lorca, like the poet. <laughs> I have a friend named Maria Moreno Moreno. Really? Now, Moreno Moreno, what would that mean to you? <laughs> Moreno. She has two, uh, the, uh-huh. her mother and father had the same family name, exactly. basically. Yeah. <laughs> Maria Man- Moreno Moreno. Okay, well, enough of this name stuff. Let's talk about Madrid. I introduced the segment uh, talking about Castile. Do I have it right? Is Madrid the main city of Castile, and Castile would be the dominant uh, region in the center of Spain? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the central plateau. Castile. What does that mean? The land of castles. The land of castles, literally. Mm, Castilla. Tierra de Castillos, the land of castles. You yeah. see a lot of castles when you travel Many, around. Many. Really, the, yeah. on the cover of guidebooks, you see the incredible castles of La Mancha. Everywhere, everywhere. And you know something? The ones that have a cycle tower, they were Christians. And the ones that have a square tower, they were Muslims. Really? Mm-hmm. Why is that? Different architectural techniques or, 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 yeah. or styles that they had in those days. But that was a sign, a way to see if the fortress was belonging to the Christian Empire or to the Islamic. Because I understand power. in the castle design, uh, a medieval European innovation would be a round castle because you can't chop off the corner enabling <laughs> it to fall down. You can't um, corrupt the uh, structure of the castle by mm-hmm. knocking off the corner mm-hmm. if it's round. Mm-hmm. But you can, at a distance, tell if it's a Christian or a Moorish castle. Absolutely. You can even see in some places, even the name, the name of the villages or the small towns where you find these castles is always related about a Moorish legacy or a Christian heritage. And you can see that. And as soon as you see the castle and you see the name of a village, you immediately know what's going on there. What's an example? For example, Alcalá de Henares is a beautiful and remarkable town where Cervantes, the writer of Don Quixote, was born. This is a nice place nearby Madrid. It's about 25 minutes driving time. And there we find the 
castle and the wall that is really, really Islamic. But now, how did you know that from the name? Al Kala. Ah, if you see Al, that's a, mm-hmm. an Arabic um, In, preposition root, or something. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, an Al Khazar, that means. Arabian fortress. So there's a town called a fortified of Arabian fortification. And just for people who need a little brush up on their basic Spanish history, we should remember that the Muslim Moors swept in from Africa, Mm -hmm. 7-11, and within a short period of time, they controlled all of Spain and Portugal. They even went into France. And for centuries, Europe was trying to push those Muslim Moors back into Africa. And there's a huge Christian campaign, uh, the Reconquista, to take back Iberia and and re-Christianize it. Mm -hmm. And if you ask a European what happened in 1492, Mm -hmm. they won't think of Columbus sailing the ocean (laughs) view. What happened for you in 1492? (laughs) Well, in 1492, we are witness of the unification of Spain. That's the first time in our history that we talk about Spain as a united nation uh, in many ways, politically, socially, economically, historically. But also, that was the beginning of an age of intolerance. In many ways. Okay, but 1492 marked the year they expelled the Muslims totally. and the Moors back away from their last castle in Granada. Exactly. Back into Morocco. Exactly. So 1492, oh, mm-hmm. finally got those Moors out of Europe. Exactly. Now, now, today, interestingly enough, also. you have a lot of Moorish, a lot of African Muslim people coming into mm-hmm. Spain, actually being welcomed into Spain. Yeah. There's assimilation. Mm-hmm. My understanding is... In the European Union, there's a lot of different uh, administrative concerns, and one of them is Islamic affairs or Muslim affairs in Europe. Uh Is Granada a leading city for the administration of Muslim concerns in the European Union? Yes, yes. In Granada, and also let me also tell you that in Madrid, we find nowadays the biggest mosque in in Spain. So this is a big issue in Spain. There's a major part of your society is Islamic. I really consider that they are, I call them the biggest minority in Spain, yeah. Roughly what percent of Spain is Muslim? We can say that maybe at least, at least a a million and a half people approximately. A million and a half people. I really think most of them are located in central and southern Spain. But uh, I think approximately we are talking about that. Uh, and it's growing. People. It's growing. Yeah, yeah. I was in Granada recently, and there is a big new mosque uh-huh. paid for by the, uh, I believe, the uh, United Arab Emirates and some yeah, money from you're right. the, the gold. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. A lot of money came, a beautiful new mosque in a uh-huh. very central part of the city. Yeah. And there was a little bit of a controversy. They wanted to have an amplified call to prayer five times a day. <laughs> and the people said, well, you can have your mosque, and we're, all in, we're, we're happy to have you here and everything, but you cannot amplify the call to prayer. So five times a day, a man climbs to the top of the roof yeah. and maybe to the minaret, and mm-hmm. he yells at the top of his lung the call to prayer, I suppose like they did in the Middle Ages. In the same way, exactly in the same way. No, it is, it is something, something new in Spain, you know. It, it, we can talk about this and many more things, and, and, and nowadays I, th- I really think that the role of the Spanish government and the president, uh, Zapatero, is extremely important to consider about all these things. He's, from my side, I really think he's, he's doing a, a very, very good job about all these things, I, integration policies, you know, with immigrants and many more things in Spain that are changing in many ways. So this is nothing new. I mean, we were talking about the Reconquista and the 700-year struggle between Islam and Christendom using Spain as a battleground, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Didn't uh, the Europeans... Santiago de Compostela was sort of a rallying cry for the Christian forces against the Muslims in the Middle Ages. Exactly. Tell me about that. I can tell you. I can tell you several things about that. I can tell you. It depends. It depends about... Uh, some people have uh, faith, and, and they obviously believe, and I obviously respect that, all these stories, but if we if we talk about history, we have to admit, we have to assume nowadays, that in those days in Spain, the Spanish legacy was absolutely spectacular. Cities like Córdoba, Granada, Seville. And in those days, northern Spain and Portugal, the Christian kingdoms, they were quite, quite ignorant in many, many fields that the Arabs were experts, architecture, science, music, mathematics, astronomy, whatever. The thing is that St. James, St. James of Compostela, Santiago de Compostela, so Santiago means Saint James. Exactly. Santiago, in same word, Santiago, is Saint James. And you know, we, we know that Santiago was the one that was commissioned to evangelize Spain, but we have no historic proof to tell us that physically Saint James was in Spain. So the the birth of these Gothic cathedrals in Spain and the way of Saint James is just a kind of answer to the Islamic power in Spain, how to materialize faith, how to make Christianity tangible. Ah, so the Muslims had their strong faith and you wanted to make it tangible for Christians. But I understand 
St. James was part of the, the excuse to get Europeans excited about coming down to, to Spain to fight the Muslims oh, was, yes. to, was to make the story that St. James was buried in Santiago mm-hmm. and it was controlled by the Muslims. Mm-hmm. Therefore, people in Germany and France could send their, their boys down there to, to, to free the tomb of St. James from the Muslims. Of course. So that was the excuse for this big battle between Christians and Muslims. That's a word. It's so poignant Excuse, today. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. It's so poignant today. We find that as we travel through Spain, these echoes of these struggles between East and West and Christendom and mm. Islam. Mm. I'm talking with Federico Garcia Barroso, and we're talking about Spain. You live in Madrid. That's my city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Madrid is the modern capital of Spain, but mm-hmm. not the historic capital of Spain. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell me about the... Uh, Toledo was the original capital of Spain, wasn't it? What happened? Okay, Toledo, by the way, it was used as a capital. <laughs> it was a kind of perpetual use of Toledo as a capital, although it was not really named, never as a real capital, but it was definitely the, the place where the first monarchs settled down. The kings and the, and the church. The exactly, the, church. This, the Spanish monarchy and the Spanish church, the archbishop and the Spanish inquisition also. And um, Toledo, is a, Toledo is, is a wonderful place. It's actually um, now we're driving time from Madrid. And there you find how, and this is, we, we should consider these things nowadays, what I'm going to say now, that how uh, the three cultures, Jews, Muslims, and Christians, they coexisted in, in perfect harmony, you know, 500 years ago. And nowadays we can see, we can see the legacy of, of all those uh, civilizations all together in the same city, city in those days, you know. Today we arrive and we see a small and picturesque town, but it was considered a very cosmopolitan city in those days. Let me also tell you, Rick, that uh, Toledo is a place where it was uh, created the first European university when we talk about translators, interpreters. Hmm? Now, you said in 1492 that was the end of tolerance? That was the beginning of, exactly, that was the The beginning of of intolerance, meaning Mm -hmm. Christians, they took over the uh, peninsula and now um, bad Mm -hmm. news for the Jews and the the Muslims. Exactly, they were expelled. That was uh, Isabella and Ferdinand, they decided to do. And I honestly think nowadays that it was a mistake. They expelled the Moors to northern Africa and also the Jews, all the different guilds of Jews. A lot were. of the Jews, I think, went up to Amsterdam and, and different exactly. more welcoming places at Much that more. difficult time. <laughs> so people got to roll with the punches as different uh, bits of intolerance come and go around European history. Madrid's the modern capital of Spain. Now, Toledo was built within the tight bend in the river, so natural fortifications, but in modern mm-hmm. times, it just it constricted it. So they, I think they just said, wow, we've got to start it with a new modern city. And today, you feel the energy of the success mm-hmm. of Spain's economy when you are in Madrid. I'm speaking with Federico Garcia Barroso. And Federico lives in Madrid, and today we're, we're talking about Madrid, we're talking about Castile, the central province, and we're talking about Spain in general. Our phone number, 877-333-RICK. And you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Με λένε Πένι, είμαι από τους Δελφούς και ταξιδεύω με τον Rick Steves. That was Greek. I'm Penny, from Delphi, Greece, and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. 
Με λένε Πένι, είμαι από τους Δελφούς και ταξιδεύω με τον Ρίκ Στίβς. Right now we're exploring the heart of Spain, Madrid, in the Castile region, on Travel with Rick Steves. A little later, we'll get acquainted with a remote island getaway, Mauritius, which offers a tempting bouquet of cultures way out in the Indian Ocean. I'm Rick Steves, this is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're traveling through the middle of Spain, Castile and Madrid, and I'm joined by Federico Garcia Barroso. Federico, when you talk about Castile, is that a state or a province, or what do you say? Castile is one, one of the 17 self-governing communities in, in Spain. If we talk about political geography, but if we talk about physical geography, Castile actually is just the central plateau of Spain. So really it's the central high plateau of Spain exactly. and the big city, the sprawling city. How many million people in Madrid now? In Madrid, if we talk about the city, there are approximately close to 4 million inhabitants in Madrid city and 5 million in total if we talk about the province, the whole state of Madrid. And it's the hub of a wonderful transportation system now with this new Ave train. And Ave's been around for 20 years or so, but every year they open a new length of it. Just last year we have the, mm -hmm. the link to Toledo now. Exactly. How fast to yeah. Toledo? Well, actually, now you can visit Toledo in less than half an hour. Less than half an hour. 20 or 25 minutes, if I am not wrong, yeah. That's great. Which is fantastic. We have some people calling us on the line. Remember, our phone number is 877-333-RICK. Let's talk with Sarah in Chicago. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Rick. How are you? Great. Thanks for your call. Good. Thanks for taking it. Yeah. Do you have a question or a comment for Federico? You know, I do. My husband and I traveled to Spain and France for our honeymoon last year, and while we were in Spain, we stayed in a wonderful parador in Toledo, and we were staying there just for a recommendation of a friend, and I wanted to get a little bit of information um, from you and Federico about the parador system in Spain, and is this something that they have in other countries in Europe as well, or is it just something that Spain does? Hello, Sarah. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Fine. Okay, let me, let me tell you something about the paradores. The paradores, paradores is something quite specific from Spain, this state inns in Spain. And you have the same choice in Portugal, but they are called posadas. Okay. okay. And most of these um, state hotels, they are really, uh, they are historical buildings and the quality of the service is absolutely, absolutely the best, the best. Mm -hmm. And the prices are quite reasonable. Something that you can do also nowadays when you you want to get some information, is that there are some coupons uh, that are valid for any Parador in Spain. So you just go with those coupons of those uh, tickets, you see, and you can use it at any Parador in Spain. And even sometimes in Portugal, in the Posadas, they have the same uh, policy, you know. But basically, okay. these are these are historic buildings that the government, I think, has decided they got to earn their keep doing something. Mm -hmm. So rather than let them just become rotten, they turn them into fancy hotels. Exactly. And many of these have incredible history and great original art in, exactly. in magnificent settings. Uh, you stayed in the one in Toledo? We did, yes. And that was a good view, isn't it? It was absolutely gorgeous. The um, view from our hotel was overlooking the whole city. That's the mm. most famous view of Toledo, I think, across the gorge. Mm. You pay a, a reasonable, it's, it's a kind of a splurge, but I think most people consider a, a Parador a good value. Would you say so, Federico? Absolutely. Sarah, did you stay in any other Paradors or just that one? No, that was the only one. Like I said, we just got that one through a recommendation from a friend. And the rest of the time we were in Spain, we just stayed in, you know, regular hotels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All over Spain, you've got historic buildings. If you want to have a memorable accommodation experience, Paradores are a great idea. And as Federico said, in Portugal, they're called Pusadas. Mm-hmm. I think um, probably cost $150 a night or something like something this. Something like that. In that, in that it category. It was something like that, but, you know, we had breakfast every day, we had dinner there every night, and the food was fantastic as well. So that's we really great. enjoyed ourselves. That's true. The food, that's one of the main things of the Paradores. They really give you the best food, local food, uh, in every place. If you go to the Parador of La Mancha in the land of Don Quixote, they will give you the real food of that area of Spain mm -hmm. and, and also, of course, in any other region in Spain. 
And as a budget traveler, I like to drop into a Parador and eat there, but don't sleep there. And you can enjoy the same kind of uh, quality, <laughs> and you can true. sleep down the street in what I call a poor man's Parador. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's a good true. idea. <laughs> there, are some, there are some historic buildings that don't have the blessing of the government, you know, and they don't have the mystique or the, uh, uh-huh. the, the fanciness, and they have to have more of a competitive price, I think. So you can actually go in and you can hang out in the Parador's. You can mm-hmm. tour the Parador's almost. I, I, as a matter of mm-hmm. fact, some of them are historic, and I think by law they have to let people wander around because they're part of the national heritage. Of course, they are a monument, so, so you are absolutely welcome to, to visit the place. Yeah, You don't need to be hosted there. Mm-hmm. But if you want to sleep in a castle or a famous old building, the Parador is a good place to check, and there's good guidebooks and listings on the Paradors of Spain. Sarah, thanks for your call. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much. Have a good day, Rick. Bye now. Bye. Bye. And Brian in Orlando, Florida. Brian, how are you doing? Good, Rick. How are you? Great. Thanks for your call. Do you have any uh, comments or questions for Federico? I do. How are you doing, for Federico? Fine. And you, Brian? Good, good. I'm I'm planning a one week trip uh, to Spain and want to experience the the real culture. And aside from what I read over over here, the the music, the bullfights, the beaches, I'm looking to experience the everyday life in Spain. And uh, one of the things, sort of like uh, maybe helping out working on a vineyard or an olive grove one day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good choice. Why not? It's not. It's actually <laughs> that's really a back door, by the way. Yeah. Because uh, there are some some options. You have the several options. Uh, my suggestion, my suggestion is you should contact. Well, uh, check the website of the tourism of Spain, and there are some places uh, where they basically the main common source that they have is wine and and oil. You see, olive oil. Uh, I'm just thinking now about Jaén, for example, any tourist information office in Jaén and all these places. They will definitely provide you a list of what we call in Spanish cooperativas. Mm-hmm. Jaén, I'm sorry, what is Jaén? Jaén is actually nearby Córdoba and Granada. It's, okay. uh, and it's, can you spell that for us? Yes, of course. It's J-A-E-N. Jaén. It's okay. just an example because I know that in that province there are many, many olive trees and many vine yards also. Basically in Andalusia, in Castile, Andalusia I mean southern Spain, Castile, the central Spain, and also some regions, some areas in Catalonia, you see. So is it realistic for a tourist speaking English to Mm -hmm. be able to roll up his sleeves, put his camera away, and actually work in a farm? Absolutely. There are many foreigners that they do. Well, many. There are some foreigners that they do that. Absolutely. Well, that's a good idea. Mm -hmm. Um, That sounds great. Yeah. Let's think of some other ways. I, I just love this idea of getting into the everyday life. And, you know, you've got one week, you're an American, you're blitzing in, you're going to see some famous churches and museums, and everybody wants to get off the beaten path. But there are some ways to really do it. One of my favorites is to eat with the locals in the bars when they have their tapas. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's the famous tourist areas for tapas, but also you can just go into any neighborhood and find the local tapas bars. Any. Any advice on that, Federico? Of course. It's, it's, it's the best, the best way to enjoy So that's eating ugly things on toothpicks and washing it down with little beers. (laughs) Exactly. I think I can handle that. And then it's a movable feast. So you have your shrimp here, (laughs) and then you go down the street and you have your pig's ears. Literally, you're eating... What's the name of pig's ears? We just call it oreja. 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 What does that mean? Ear. Ear. So <laughs> but we oh, immediately assume that it's a pig's ear. A pig's ear. So they'll, and how do, they, how do they cook the pig's ears? They cut it in small pieces and they just fry these pieces. And sometimes they put a little bit of garlic and, and oh. you know, it's, it's weird, but it's delicious. Ah, it's the cartilage. I love it. It's crunchy. <laughs> and then you go down the street and you have your uh, cold soup and mm-hmm. your vegetable Gazpacho. soup. Gazpacho. Gazpacho is one of the best things to avoid mm. uh, heat in summertime in Spain. And caracoles. Caracoles. I love it in the, on the windows when they say mm. caracoles hoy. Hoy. <laughs> like what does that mean? Fresh. Fresh today. Fresh today. It's <laughs> actually, it's so funny. When I was in some little town and, it, and after the rain mm-hmm. in my town, the slugs mm-hmm. come out. Mm-hmm. And after the rain in Spain, mm-hmm. the snails come out. Yeah. And you're likely to see caracoles hoy yeah. after a rainstorm. <laughs> exactly. And the, literally, the guy who runs the bar, he just picked up a bunch of snails and yeah. he's cooked them up and <laughs> bon appetito. Are, yeah. bo, bon, how do you say in, in Espanol? Buen appetito. Buen appetito. Mm-hmm. Brian, any other ideas there, questions? No, I'm, I'm definitely going to look into that and, and I'm really looking forward to my trip and I really want to 
through the back door. So um, I really appreciate the advice. Good luck, and I'll Good remind luck, you: Ryan. any touristy place, you can still get, you can still do untouristy things. You can go into the marketplaces. Mm-hmm. In Spain, right. I, I was charmed, um, Federico. In Spain, the libraries have little branches in the marketplaces. Uh, the mm-hmm. government wants people to read books or something like this. Yes, yes. Me, I, I, I saw that in uh, Segovia, I think, or Salamanca. Mm-hmm. Fascinating, little little spices of the culture. Yes, it is exactly. And some local people they really enjoy to do that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Go into the marketplaces, eat the pickles. Eat the pickles. And yeah. the, tell me about the banderillo. <laughs> banderilla. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, oh, the banderilla. <laughs> banderilla. Actually, I don't even know how to translate that word in English. Well, banderilla. It's the, it's the spike you put in the bowl. Exactly. With all the, all the bangles on it and the decorations. Exactly. And it's this horrible sort of warm up when they when they wound the bowl and bleed him a little bit. Exactly. But you go into the market and they uh-huh. they love their pickles. Yes. And we, they put them on a skewer. Exactly. And they put the, the olives and the pepper and these little on, onions. And it is something quite, quite typical, especially in central Spain. You can find it everywhere and every bar. It is, it is actually a tradition. Whenever you go into a bar, uh, I mean, in Spanish, a bar means a place where you can drink and you can eat. And actually, it's a local tradition to give you also a small appetizer of these banderillas or squid rings or whatever, you know, but at least something to eat with your Wine or so your you beer. you order a glass of wine and you get a little morsel for free. And that's that's actually what we're, that's a real Spanish bar. That's a good bar. And a yeah. touristy bar, they won't do that or they'll charge you for it. But in a real classic exactly. bar, you get a light let meal me, with each drink. Let me tell you something, Rick. It, it's, I, I'm so sure about what I tell you that even if I if I go for the first time to any bar with my friends or with my family, and it's a local bar and they don't give us that small portion that appetizer. We, we, it's, it's actually, I can say that it's a little bit offensive for the client. What honestly, what kind of a bar is this? Yeah, you just what give kind me of a beer with no banderillo? <laughs> exactly, no squid rings, no exactly. caracoles. Oi, nothing. No. <laughs> Brian, I think you've got a world of opportunities to get off the beaten path. So, see the museums, see the churches, but absolutely get into the neighborhoods, get into the markets, and connect with the people. All right, good luck. Good luck, Brian. All right, thank you so much, Nancy in Davis, California. Hi, Nancy, thanks for the call. Hi, Rick. Hi, Federico. Nice to Hi. talk with you. Yeah, got any ideas for us on Spanish travel? Well, I'm working on a trip right now to Spain, an art adventure, as I like to call it. And one of the places that I'm planning to go is the town of Talavera de la Reina. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing a lot of research. Um, I'm limited in my foreign language. I know some French and a little Italian, and my Spanish is probably, you know, third in um, my comprehension. So I'm just wondering if you might be able to give me some pointers about this uh, ceramics town. It's, that's why I'd like to go there, because of their history of ceramics production. It's a special interest of mine. What is the name of the town, please? Talavera de la Reina. Exactly. And where is that? Talavera from the Queen. Talavera de la Reina. I heard it's in the map. It's, it's a, a town two located hours in the so province of Toledo. Yeah, it's not far from Toledo. Mm-hmm. Two, two hours west of Madrid by train, mm-hmm. it looks mm-hmm. like. Yes. Exactly. Actually, it's a bigger town than Toledo. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, Nancy, I have good news for you, you know, because Rick doesn't know this, but I can tell you, one of my best friends, she lives in Talavera de la Arena, uh-huh. and she's actually related about all this ceramic, you know, which is beautiful ceramic, as you know. So I've got here your email, and, and personally, I will I will contact you to tell oh. you something about this place and this ceramic, because my friend, Elena, she lives there, and, and she's quite in, in all these things of uh, Talavera and this beautiful ceramic, so... Good news. I, I will wow. personally continue. Nancy, honestly. that's quite a treat. That's a jackpot. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, let's talk in for the general value of all of our listeners now about these ceramics. I haven't heard of this town for ceramics. Mm. If you want the uh, in, insight into the handicraft or this art form, yeah. well, where do you go in Spain and, and what do you do? Talavera de la Reina. Well, I can tell you that these um, ceramic, all these uh, handicrafts, if you see them, they are slightly similar to the ones that we find in Portugal, you know. And they are quite primitive, but very, very picturesque, mm. eh? with yellow and blue colors. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is something quite specific from that town, Talavera. Needless to say that you can go to Toledo, of, and of course you can go to Madrid City, and you will find some places where you can get these pieces, you know, but the real place is Talavera. It's something quite exclusively from this town. It's a beautiful right. and very Talavera, picturesque. Talavera, T-A-L-A-V-E-R-A. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Great, Nancy. Well, you'll be getting a, an email here from Federico. Oh, I feel very fortunate. Yeah, Thank right. you so much. Have You're a good time Nancy. on your trip. Thank you. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye now. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're traveling in Spain today thanks to the help of a friend and fellow tour guide, Federico Garcia Barroso. 
Federico, mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about Madrid, and when we think about Madrid, I am just always amazed at the life in the streets. I mean, you're out at 10 o'clock at night, and it's like a festival. What's going on? It's just 10 o'clock on a Thursday. Mm-hmm. Uh, if people want to immerse themselves in this river of Spain, what advice would you have? To enjoy nightlife. This is, uh, this is something quite specific from Spain. That's true. Rick. I've been traveling around Europe for many years, and I tried to find something similar in similar countries like Italy or Greece or even Portugal and it's not easy to find you know I don't I honestly I don't really know why uh, we enjoy <laughs> nightlife so so much it is uh, one of the best things of my country to offer to the visitor the nightlife you always find restaurants bars cafes even some shops that they close very, very, very late. Now, is this related to the siesta? You're taking I a nap so. in the afternoon, so you're going to have your business day extended later. I it's think so. hot. People are inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's cool. Everybody's out. Yes, exactly. That's the main reason. We have a late breakfast, late lunch, late dinner. It's a matter of sun time. You know, I was reading the average Spaniard sleeps mm-hmm. 40 minutes less than the average European. That's true. Have yeah. you heard that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> How do you manage with less sleep? <laughs> I don't know what we do. It's just more <laughs> fun to be out, huh? Yeah. <laughs> but it is, uh, it is, you know something, it's even maybe we, people that don't know Spain, they just think that this is something exclusively for young people. But no, I can find older people and even some children Oh yeah, in this street. That's the <laughs> beautiful thing about Europe. It's a, yeah. it's a multi-generational fiesta. Exactly. Salamanca has the greatest square, I think, in Spain. Mm, absolutely. It's a beautiful square, the Plaza, Plaza Mayor. Plaza Mayor, exactly. And everybody is circling the square. And historically, mm-hmm. the men circle clockwise mm-hmm. and the women circle counterclockwise. <laughs> and it's a big show. And everybody's yeah. <laughs> going around and checking everybody. And I was there and I noticed the whole class of 19... 19- 42 was there. I mean, and, and mm-hmm. I mean, people who survived the Civil War. Yeah. And they're shorter people. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. when you look at some older person, yeah. invariably, they're like a foot and a half shorter yeah. than the younger people. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> why is that? I don't know. Really. I mean, it must be from the, the, the poverty of the Civil War age or it's, something like yes, that. Yes, of course. That's, that's what we think, you know. Maybe because of that, you know, difficult, difficult years, you know, difficult years for all that generation after the war, you see. And uh, and of course, of course, they have some problems, economical and uh, problems, and maybe maybe that's a reason because that's true. That's true. We can see that people that are really yeah. short. That's the true. Dutch have the same thing. I mean, the Dutch yeah. had the terrible Nazi occupation yeah. in Amsterdam and so mm-hmm. on, and, and there's a whole generation of people who went through their growth years yeah. under Nazi occupation, and they're shorter than everybody else. Yeah. But you see that, and it's a reminder of the. Uh, of the difficult and difficult the complex years. and the rich yeah. history that Spain has gone through in the lifetime of a lot of the people you meet on the streets. And when you go out and do that paseo, mm-hmm. you'll meet the young singles and you'll meet the old grannies and the grandpas yeah. and people are literally dancing in the streets. <laughs> I'm true. Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring Spain with my friend and fellow tour guide, Federico Garcia Parosa. Thank you very much. French culture played an important role in the history of the Indian Ocean island of Mauritius. So have Hindu, Muslim, Chinese, and African cultures. Up next, we'll get acquainted with the island nation of Mauritius from one of its native sons. Like most of his island neighbors, our guide, Patrick Noel, is a cultural mix. In his case, mostly French and Irish heritage. Patrick joins us in our Seattle studio to introduce us to his island home, Mauritius. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. And our message board is always open for your comments. You'll find it at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Let's go to Mauritius. Mauritius. It rhymes with delicious. It's an island paradise beyond Madagascar. Boy, Madagascar seems like a long ways away. But go 500 miles east of that, and you find an island about 40 miles by 40 miles with 1 million people. And for a lot of people, it's sort of a secret paradise. And I've got with me a man who's an Irishman 
who spends half his year on the on Mauritius, Patrick Noel. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Do we call it the Mauritius Islands or Mauritius or what? Mauritius. Mauritius Island or Mauritius. Yeah. And, and it's one major island. One major island. Small little islands dotted around, but they're very tiny. Um, now, now your family's in Cork, and you, you spend a good part of your year in Mauritius. Yeah. Uh, what's the story in a nutshell here? Uh, my mother's from Ireland. She's, she's uh, living back in Mauritius with my and family, cousins. And, and back in Ireland, I've got my, my daughter and also family. So my family is kind of split into two right. countries. Is there a lot of European uh, connection in Mauritius? There is about, uh, it's a very small proportion of the population. It's about 10,000, let's say 10,000 Franco-Mauritians, as we call them, uh, from which I, I'm right? from. Yeah. Franco-Mauritians. Let's say we it's not a denomination, but right. we, we have to call them. Some. But it, there's other Europeans there also. There's quite a lot of expats. People um, that just like the weather. Or work there in, in, in international organizations or right. or embassies, for instance. There's an American embassy there. So we have this island, about a million people. Uh, average income, what? Average income is about 300 uh, euros a month. So what, about five five $6,000 a year? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So yeah. Europeans who go there would find it uh, affordable? Oh, yes, yeah, very affordable, especially uh, the, the local produce and that. Anything that's important, obviously, is... Is a bit expensive, um, but a lot of fresh fruit, uh, a lot of uh, good stuff to eat down in Mauritius. You decided to live in Mauritius. Why do you like to live there? Well, I'm brought up partly in Mauritius, so um, I mean it's kind of part of my roots, the same as so Ireland. It's, so it's your roots. Yeah. All right. So well, if somebody didn't have roots there, would what would be the attraction? Well, uh, there's a big program of uh, integrated resorts at the moment going on in Mauritius. You know, they could buy that for about $500,000 and settle down in Mauritius to get the Mauritian passport at the same time. Oh, is that, there's yeah. actually a deal where you get yeah, the passport yeah. and yeah. a beautiful condo or a, yes. a home or something. Oh, yes. You get a whole, you're in a whole resort where you have uh, pools and you have tennis and you have all the facilities, golf course and the whole lot. And you're set up. Yeah. And you're a Mauritian, a, what do you call it, a Mauritian citizen? Yeah. You're a Mauritian citizen and off you go. You're... Fascinating. I mean, I didn't. I had to look it up on the map. Mauritius. Yeah. How many people have been there? Yeah, I, I don't think. I've, I don't think I've ever met somebody who's been in Mauritius. <laughs> we have Susan in Atlanta giving us a call. Hi, Susan. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. Are you thinking about Mauritius? Actually, I have English relatives. My mother was a World War II bride, and um, all her relatives are over there. And whenever I talked to them, they they'd say they're going to Mauritius for a vacation. And that's the first time I've ever heard of it was from them. And I was just listening to you, and I, I couldn't quite figure out why in the world they got all these other places they go to Mauritius for vacation. And I was wondering, you know, what is it that makes Europeans want to go there? And you've answered some of it, but what would be the lure for Americans to want to go there? Is it the scenery or climate or goodbyes or uh, just the experience of going there, vacation, people, what? What makes it so important? Uh, I think uh, Mauritius is a very highbrow location. It's uh, kind of like a five-star-plus location in general. It's known for that. So you have a lot of very well-known people go off there. Jacques Chirac used to love to go there. And because of the quality of the hotels and the the scenery, the the beaches uh, are quite unique. And the service levels are very high. And being a small island, communication by road, airport, um, you know, it's it's all connected and it's ready to go. It's sort of jet setters and high-end tourists that'll, that'll just jet down there. Yes. What, what are some of the uh, airlines that go into the airport that would come from, say, Atlanta? From Atlanta, well, you'd have to make a connection with, with Europe, uh, with either Paris or Zurich or London and Heathrow, uh, Milan, Okay. Uh, so you, you, you'll get a direct flight from there straight to Mauritius. Or if you wanted to go to Madagascar first, you'd go to France, and there's a straight flight to Madagascar. And the language? The language you have, French and English, are the official languages. And it's, it's very quirky because the, the newspapers are in French, and the road signs are in English, <laughs> uh, and everybody speaks French. Uh, but they, they communicate by business, let's say, uh, verbally in French, but they, hmm. they do the emails in English. Wow. So that's a bit strange. And I read half of the people are Hindu. Yes, oh. 50% of the people are, are, are Hindu. They were brought in as indentured laborers for the sugarcane fields. Ah, does that bring a problem with the society, with an underclass? Or are these people integrated? Um, oh, know, no, there's, there's, uh, they, they are very wealthy. They are different classes of Indians in terms of wealth. And there's a big system of caste in, in the Indian society, kind of the same as in India. 
you know, the bigger families and lower and middle um, and all that kind of thing. But the Hinduism gives a sort of a grace and a fragrance to the to the society, I would think, and it, oh, yeah. a fascinating cultural mix. Well, you have uh, Hindus, Muslims, uh, Creoles, which come from Africa or mixed race, if Chinese, and uh, yeah, well, it's, it's quite phenomenal for an island of that size, thirty six miles by thirty two, to have all these people together. So basically, you have a melting pot. Yeah, it's a matter but it works pretty well, you know, for uh, considering. And we got on great. We got independence in 1968, and uh, there were prophets of doom saying, well, you know, the country's going to go to to ruin. And there was a lot of immigration, but then we got the textile industry going, uh, tourism hmm. in a major way, and then we got an offshore section, a financial section as, uh, as well. Um, Meaning what? Um, offshore banking. So this is just a place to hide your money? <laughs> uh, well... Or, um, or avoid taxes and so on, have little fake little business. I, I'm so sure probably that's the, the reality. I, I'm, yeah. I'm not too sure. I'm not a buffing on financial matters, I'm afraid. Okay, offshore bank. Well, that's a good industry for an island 500 miles east of Madagascar. The website for the tourist industry talks about this multicultural harmony, and it sounds like that's that's actually true. You know, being from Mauritius, there's still a lot to do in terms of getting a, a Mauritian identity, on the other hand, you, if you see what I mean. Because people get on and are friends, and but there's still a lot to do to to have this, for instance, intermarriage. We don't have a lot of intermarriage. Okay, so there's parallel communities on the island. Exact. Huh. For the tourists, it's, it's it's fine, it's no problem. Right. And um, Mauritians are very welcoming, very friendly. So, as I say, the service levels are great. But there is that still to look forward to and move uh, towards. It's having a blend having a Mauritian identity Creole coming out. What would you say the major challenge confronting Mauritius society is today then? Well, I would say that they had to get real and, you know, push towards a kind of a equality on all sides and blending in and have, for instance, a non-Indian prime minister, which we had just a few years ago, but that was an electoral arrangement. But uh, it's very unlikely that there's a non-Indian prime minister. Right. Because so the Indian uh, element in society dominates politically. Absolutely, yeah. It is 50% Hindu and politically dominated by Indians. Yes. Well, uh, obviously, you have to please all the communities as the rainbow thing. So mm -hmm. you have to include a Creole, let's say, and um, foreign minister and all that kind of thing. And a critical part of the economy would be tourism, and you've got to keep all of the Europeans who are jetting in there happy and have the comfortable resorts and so on. Exactly. For instance, in uh, in France, we have a, a Franco-Mauritian ambassador to kind of like, you know... It's fascinating to think the place wasn't even inhabited until the mid-1600s when the Dutch came. That's right, yeah. Nobody lived there. No, just, <laughs> only the just, dodo. Just dodo birds. Yeah. Kind of an exotic environment. No people. When Vasco da Gama and those guys opened it up, you got the Europeans using yeah. it as a base for their trade, I guess. Well, the, the Dutch came, they were the first ones to implant, and then the Portuguese came and, and left. As the, the French actually created the basis for what the island is today. Okay, so really the roots today are French. Yeah, they they created sugarcane agriculture infrastructures and and all that kind of thing. And there's also the on the spice road. I mean, they call it the star and key of the Indian Ocean. Don't forget the spice road was huge back then. Well, that's interesting. So the spice road, I always thought of as a bunch of camels, but then after Vasco da Gama, the spice road becomes a chain of islands where the the European trading boats would use as a hopscotching across the Indian Ocean. Absolutely, and we're bang in the middle. Mauritius, bang in the middle. Yeah, Susan, does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. I, I, I wanted to ask if there's one thing, Patrick, that you could take from Mauritius and take it to someone to be indicative of Mauritius. What would you take to them as a gift? Um, I, um, I would think of uh, the colored earths. We have colored earths up in uh, a place called Chamarel, and it, it comes in a little, like a little test tube. Yeah, and if you put them, the, the, the colored earth mixed in, overnight they separate into the different colors. And that would be a good gift, I think. Sounds like oh. a, a symbol of the society at large in Mauritius. As well. <laughs> Lots of colors, but it separates overnight. <laughs> exactly. The colored dirt of Mauritius. <laughs> there you go, Susan. There's yeah, your souvenir. Well, well thank you. Thanks, Thanks for your call. Thank you. Shannon in Fort Collins, Colorado, emailed us, and she wants to schedule a holiday in Mauritius and wants to know when the bargain season is, when the off-season, I guess that means, and is it better to go with children or without children? That's interesting. Is there a peak season for tourism? There is a peak season around Christmas time, and, and it'd be very difficult to get a, a flight out there and, and back around the, the very peak of Christmas, New Year. Is that Year. because that's the best weather? That is very good weather. It's quite warm. There is a, a slight risk of cyclone, though, but the cyclone season, season starts from December, 
to about March. Cyclone, March. that's uh, yeah. hurricanes. a hurricane south yeah. of the equator or something? Yeah, hurricane season. Is that technically what the definition of a cyclone is? Yes. A hurricane south Exa of the equator. Mauritius is south of the equator. Therefore, Christmas would be the summer peak season. Exactly. Okay. Is the winter, which would be our July and August, is that actually bad weather? No, it's, it's the same, except the difference is you can really feel the water when you go in. It's, it's nice. Okay, so bathtub warm versus just warm. Just, exactly. Oh, that's beautiful. That's <laughs> Sounds nice. Got an email from Robert in Moscow, Idaho, and Robert says he recently bought tickets to South Africa. They were very expensive. He wants to go to Mauritius and uh, wonders if there's any inexpensive way to get there. Um, what's the flight situation? The flight situation is pretty, uh, Mauritius is pretty on its own in terms of travel routes, so you don't have, really have much of a package deals or what we're trying to do and what I'd like to see is a, a package from, that includes Madagascar, Rodrigues, and Mauritius, let's say, hmm. or, or Réunion, Mauritius, Madagascar, which, the weather, which then the price could come down. And because it's a highbrow and no charter kind of, now that they started to open up, but it's mostly the flagships that, that go there. So inevitably, the price is still... Meaning, uh, meaning the big airlines, not the discount airlines? Not the discount airline, or the right. flagship Air France, British Airways, right. etc. Because there's uh, cheap charters from uh, Europe down to Sri Lanka, for instance, for all the vacationers, and that can be very inexpensive. You don't have that for Mauritius. We don't. So if you were in London, just ballpark, and you wanted to fly down to Mauritius and back, what would you bet it would cost in dollars? In in dollars, you'd have to convert seven hundred and fifty euros. Um, nine hundred dollars. Yes, nine hundred dollars round trip from London. That's not that bad. So it's not could, that bad. That would be the lower uh, the lower fares. Yeah, and if yeah. you're going around Christmas, you'd probably pay a fifty percent premium or something like that. Something like that. All right, I'm talking with Patrick Noel, and he's an Irishman who lives in Mauritius. That's five hundred miles east of Madagascar. It's a little island, about 32 miles, she said, by 35 miles, yep. and uh, about a million people. Half of them are Hindu, dominated by uh, the Indian uh, culture, but lots of European presence there. French and English both work. Uh, is a stable democracy, would you call it? I would say very stable, yes. And uh, we have also the Creole language, which is uh, spoken by everyone. And I looked up on the uh, website, and uh, there's, there's tourist boards in Europe and in many countries, but no real tourist board in the United States. So I don't think it's a big connection with America as well as... It's more with Europeans, it sounds it, like. It is. The European clientele is, is huge. Yes, you, do, you do have Americans coming down. Uh, we have Ron on the line in Claremont, California. Hi, Ron. Hi. How are you doing? Fine. I'm a biologist, and I go to places because I'm interested in the nature thereabouts. And Mauritius is uh, an ecologically absolutely unique area. And a lot of that is gone, but I don't think it all is. I have friends who are also biologists from Australia that told me decades ago that it was the most unusual biological area they'd ever seen. And I've wanted to go there ever since. So I'm curious to know what the opportunities are for ecotourism and seeing the natural features of Mauritius. Ecotourism in Mauritius is in its infancy and there's a lot of tour companies starting that. Uh, I myself have an idea of, of setting up something like that, you know, because there is a, a growing interest. But um, in any case, by going with the, even with a taxi or um, you know, getting some information on the spot, it is, there is a wealth there that, that is uh, everywhere. <laughs> there's also the some dodo bones that have been found just a year ago on a sugarcane factory. Um, so I understand land. this was the home of the dodo bird. This was the unique home of a whole dodo bird, you know, the 36 miles by 32, uh, unique in the world. There was nobody. The dodo bird else. never lived anywhere else as far as we know. Nowhere else. And it went extinct when? It went extinct in about the eight, uh, 18th century. 18th century. Yeah. And there's a tree on Mauritius, a, a species of tree that in order to reproduce, the seeds have to pass through the digestive tract of a dodo. And consequently, there haven't been any new trees there for over two centuries. And there are only a few of the very old trees remaining. That in itself, I think, is fascinating. That is grounds almost to fly 500 miles east of Madagascar. So Absolutely. those trees are living today, and they were only able to grow because they were warmed up by going through the digestive system of a dodo bird. Yes, that's the idea. Oh my God, yeah. Fascinating. So you're a biologist, Ron. Yes, that's right. And you mentioned that this is a unique and a, a particularly fascinating opportunity for people who are interested in, in environmental travel and so on. I would think so. So I was, my, really, my question was if, if there was some company or agency or whatever that 
catered to people like me who could mm-hmm. take you out in a Jeep or uh, lead you around and uh, show you things that you might otherwise not find on your own in this particular area. Well, as Patrick said, it's in its infancy, that kind of ecotourism, but I think there's a lot of appreciate nature kind of sightseeing that goes on, judging from the website that I perused before our interview. There's beautiful lagoons and white sandy beaches, wonderful environment to explore and, and ways well, to Well, if ever that. I'm down there and we, you want to get in touch, I'll, I'll bring you around and... <laughs> It'd be a pleasure, you know, because it interests me as much as it does you. Well, you obviously know him far better than I do. Well, I think it would be a good idea for a business that, as we all know, that kind of attraction, that aspect of areas around the world is becoming more and more important in tourism in yeah. general and certainly in places that are as unusual as Mauritius. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ron, thanks so much for your call. You're welcome. And good luck with uh, your trip to the land of the dodo bird. Well, thank you. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. I'm talking with Patrick Noel, and uh, we're talking about the island of Mauritius. So, Patrick, half of the people on the island are Hindu, but there's a huge European influence and goes all the way back to the the first French that came there, mostly, right? That's right, yeah. The French is the dominant European culture. How does that uh, come through in the Creole language today? Creole is is a broken French and, and it's spoken by everyone on the island. That's what unites everyone, in, in a way, because... So that's the common uh, It's a common bond. language, yeah. Because the Indians speak Indian between themselves sometimes, and the French speak French, but the Creole okay. gets everybody going. Let me hear a little bit of that. Um, one, it's, this part of a lullaby, but I'm, I'm just going to say it. So, mot passé la rivière Tanier, mozuanen vie grand mama. Mot dirli kili ferla, lidia moi li la pescabo. Why, why, mes enfants, faut travail pour gagner son pain. What it says is, I'm going down the river, riverway, and I see this old lady and say, what are you doing there? He said, um, I'm just fishing for the cabo, which is a Mauritian fish. He said, everybody's got to work for their bread, you know. Huh. And that's a, a lullaby that... Uh, yeah, La Rivière Tanya. Yes. And uh, it's not a French lullaby, it's a Mauritian Yes, Mauritian lullaby. Creole lullaby. Yeah, it's very famous one, La Rivière Tanya. Could you understand it in French? Would, it, would a French person be able to... If it was uh, slow enough, I suppose it would pick up a few words, yeah. Right. The general gist. <laughs> Patrick, thank you so much for giving us a little peek at a mysterious and distant island that sounds like a great place to call home. It it is indeed. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.